My name is Cindy Tyree, and I'm going to be reading Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 through chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you. Into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Blessed Lord, you have caused your holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I know by saying this, I am confirming your suspicions that I am a huge nerd. But I embrace that, okay? I am a nerd, and I love footnotes. Uh, I love books with footnotes, to be more specific. Endnotes are okay, they're annoying. Uh, I want the footnotes so I can see where you're getting your ideas, so I can chase down thoughts and find it in the original sources and read it for myself. I like books with footnotes. But what about prayers? Uh, Should prayers have footnotes? If the author of Jonah was following modern conventions, Jonah chapter 2, this prayer from the belly of the fish, would have lots of footnotes. Because Jonah is quoting, alluding to, borrowing, plagiarizing, I don't know, the Psalms. I mean, he is pulling from all these different Psalms. If his professor ran this prayer through Turnitin, all kinds of red flags are going up for plagiarism. Now, is that a problem? I mean, I often, in my own prayer life... Go to comfortable religious language. It helps me express my heart. So when I'm praying, especially when I'm praying those prayers through tears, 
The language is sometimes borrowed from hymns or from scriptures that I memorized. And on occasion, it even comes out in King James English. Is it a problem? Not necessarily. But where we've seen Jonah and where we see him going, it raises some questions. How much of this is actually Jonah and reflecting his heart, and how much of it is just him parroting religious language? If you're just joining us, this is the third week in a series on the book of Jonah. Let me recap where we have been so far in ten words. And my recap has motions. Okay, kids? Okay, here's the recap. God sent Jonah. Jonah, or God, wait, let me, let me scratch that. Let me try this again. God sent Jonah. Jonah ran. God chased Jonah. Jonah got swallowed. Okay, that's where we're at. Jonah has been thrown overboard. He's been swallowed by a great fish. And he offers this prayer. But before we look at the prayer, I think this is an appropriate place to take a little bit of a detour and ask some interpretive questions like, how do we read the book of Jonah? Is Jonah fact? Or is it a didactic, a a teaching fiction? Now, don't react too strongly to the idea that fiction might be in our Bible, right? We see it. The prophet Nathan tells a fictional story about a sheep stealer and uses that story to confront David's adultery. Jesus tells fictional stories. We call them parables. It's not a problem to say Jonah could be a fiction if that's what the author intended, if that's how it's supposed to be taken. But if it's intended to be taken factually, and we take it as fiction, well, that's a problem. Another potential problem. One author that I was reading this week, a commentator, who takes Jonah as a work of fiction, does so because he says, in his words, the events strain credulity. You just can't believe them. They're too fantastical. Well... That is a problem. Because if we reject the factuality of Jonah because of these grand miracles and things like someone living inside the belly of a fish just doesn't seem possible to us, well, that doesn't bode well for how we approach other passages with miracles, like the parting of the Red Sea or the resurrection of the dead. So how do I take the book of Jonah? As fact, as history, parable, allegory? Well, to all of those, I would say yes. Yes, though I prefer the word typology over allegory. I think we have to take Jonah at its face value as a historical account of facts that happened because it seems to me that that is what the author intends. He roots the book of Jonah in a historical person, Jonah, the son of Amittai, Not just some nameless prophet, but someone who we have historical record of. And the witness of the early church is 
not unanimous, but almost unanimous, that it was meant to be taken factually. Oh, and I think that's how Jesus understood it, too. But when I say it's factual, I don't mean it's just bare facts. It's not just bald history. It's poetic history. It's history artfully told. And the art, as much as the history, is inviting us, or maybe even demanding of us, to draw theological and ethical conclusions. It's not just the facts, but how the facts are told that are pointing us to a bigger reality. This week, I want to take a slightly different approach than what I did last week. Last week, we walked through Jonah, and then at the end, I gave you some points of application. This message this morning is organized around three, uh, three application-oriented principles. Now, diving into the prayer of Jonah, three application-oriented principles. First, discomfort is often a mercy. Jonah is incredibly uncomfortable throughout most of the story, but especially in chapter 2. He's drowning. He's sinking. He's gonna die. And God sends a big fish, maybe a whale, to rescue Jonah. Not punish. I think that's important. Not punish rescue Jonah. Uh, The word, the NIV translate God sent a fish. The word is actually God appointed a fish. And this is the first of four times that word appointed is going to show up in the book of Jonah. We'll talk about it later when we get to chapter uh, four. But God appointed a fish to come and swallow Jonah. Some Jewish rabbis have, have looked at that word and said, and thought to themselves that God created this fish during the six days of creation specifically for the purpose of swallowing Jonah. Uh, The text doesn't demand that of us, but it's an interesting kind of thought. But what the text, I think, does show is God is one step ahead of Jonah. God's mercy is checkmating Jonah's sin. But this mercy smells real bad. It's gross. It's slimy. This is not plush accommodations. God could have done it another way, right? He could have sent a chariot of fire like he did for Elijah. He he could have sent eagles like what we see in Lord of the Rings, right? Rescuing Frodo. He could have sent a school of dolphins and Jonah could have rode on them like Aquaman or something. That, that would have been cool, but it would have communicated something different. This whole ordeal, the storm, the sailor's inquisition, the whale, all the discomfort is God's mercy. Because it's not a kindness for God to leave us in our rebellion. It is not a kindness for God to give us our sinful desires. Romans chapter 1 makes that abundantly clear. When God pours out his wrath on mankind, he gives them what they want. He says, you want this? You really, really want this? Here you go. 
But in the story of Jonah, Jonah wanted to be away from the presence of God. And God, in his mercy, would not let Jonah have what he wanted. His kindness, his stern, uncomfortable, smelly, slimy kindness was designed to bring Jonah to repentance. It's discipline. And discipline is a mercy. Thinking biblically, a God who doesn't discipline is a God who doesn't love his children very much. Now, when we try to apply this to our life, we have to thread a needle, I think, really, really carefully. Because I certainly don't want to be a Pollyannish type Christian that looks at everything and calls everything good and everything is a blessing. And they say things like, oh, you got in a car accident and you're paralyzed. Oh, how wonderful. Now you'll really learn how to trust God. No. But I also don't want to fall into another error that treats all suffering as attributed to personal sin. Oh, you got in a car accident and you're paralyzed. You must have done something really awful. No, the book of Job does not give us permission to draw a direct line between personal sin and all suffering. But for fear of falling into those two errors, I think sometimes I shy away from a biblical truth that God does discipline those he loves. And discipline is a mercy. This week I was talking to a friend of mine. We did lunch. And he was telling me that he can't feel his feet anymore. Kind of scary driving. You can't feel the brake pedal or the gas pedal. But really problematic when he walked out onto a very hot patio and didn't realize how hot it was and burned his feet and ended up with blisters. Uh, The pain would have, if he could feel his feet, alerted him to the problem. Discomfort, pain, It may be a warning, maybe a warning, that you're in rebellion, that you're going the wrong way, that there's sin that needs to be addressed. So brother, sister, Christian, son, daughter of God, I think we ought to consider those possibilities Are your plans consistently frustrated? Are your finances consistently strained? Are your relationships fraying? Does everything seem like it goes wrong all the time? Are you in deep distress consistently? Maybe God is saying to you, something's off. Something's wrong. Pay attention to the discomfort. Pay attention to the the pain. Maybe your plans are excluding God. Wrestling through that, I would encourage you to do that in community. To do that with trusted brothers and sisters in Christ, spiritual advisors. But don't push that possibility away. The pain isn't meant to be punishment 
but to lead us to repentance. So discomfort is often a mercy. Second point, you are never beyond the reach of God's mercy. Jonah quotes, again, extensively from the book of Psalms. He's drawing on lots of Psalms that have water images and images of the underworld. He refers to Sheol and the pit. Sheol is sometimes translated grave, but I think more often than not, it has a more negative connotation. It's not just the grave, it's the netherworld where the wicked await final judgment. When Jonah's in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. Interestingly, in ancient mythology, that's how long it took to travel to the netherworld. So Jonah says, not just I'm in Sheol, but verse 2, I'm in the belly of Sheol. I'm in a living, breathing prison. This is my living hell. And here in the belly of this big fish, Jonah's getting just a glimpse of what he asked for. He's here closer to death than he is to life. He's run away from the presence of the Lord. He keeps going down and down and down away from God. God who is the source of life. To be away from God is to be outside of life in death. Jonah here is closer to death than life. And he says, the gates of hell, those bars were threatening to enclose me and keep me forever. But why does Jonah pray now? Jonah chapter 1, it seems like Jonah has a death wish. That's a suspicion that gets confirmed later in the book. Jonah wanted to die. So he's about to die. Why does he pray? Maybe it's because Jonah realized that there's something worse than merely death. Eternity away from the presence of the Lord. I know it's kind of cliche to say this. It's the stuff of Instagram posts and trendy tattoos. But it is often darkest right before the dawn. Maybe that's true because it's when it's darkest that we finally pray. The darkest part of night, the deepest part of suffering. And that's where Jonah prays. And he's heard He's heard. One of the themes of the book of Jonah is that Yahweh's, God's lordship, extends over all creation. It extends to Nineveh, who was outside the borders of Israel. It goes down to Joppa. It extends to the open ocean, which was in ancient times considered the the region of chaos. God's there. God commands tempests, seas, great fish. He's sovereign over all those. He's up in heaven, he's sovereign there, and he's all the way down to Sheol, to the pit. Jonah has gone as far physically as he can go from God. He's gone down to the roots of the mountains, and he's gone 
pretty far spiritually too, away from the presence of God. But God's mercy finds him there. It's a reminder to us, as deep as you are, as far as you are from God, he can hear the prayer for mercy. Are you trapped in a hell of addiction? In the darkness of depression? Are cords of guilt or shame wrapped around your head like seaweed? Are prison bars, maybe of your own making, holding you captive? Are you dealing with generations of hurt or brokenness? God's mercy can reach you where you are. The third principle, it is the strength of God's mercy, not the quality of our repentance that matters. The prayer that Jonah offers here is just odd given the circumstances. Jonah doesn't say, save me, God. It's a prayer of thanksgiving, which I guess you could say, well, he's viewing the fish as his salvation, and he trusts that God's going to complete what he started. He's going to save him. And this prayer is in the past tense. You did this. It's kind of odd, but it's poetry. We let odd things go in poetry. And it's deeply, I mentioned this at least twice, right? Deeply dependent on other Psalms. He quotes from Psalm 18, 42, 50, 116, 120, 131, and others. It reminds me a bit of the debate that's been going on in pop music, popular music, for 30, 40 years about sampling. Sampling is when you take a guitar riff or a bass lick or a drum beat from a previously recorded song and you incorporate it into your song and you build your song around that hook. And the debate is, is that creative or is it lazy? Is it plagiarism? But even something more strange is happening in Jonah's prayer. There isn't a word of confession or repentance. Contrast Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish with penitential psalms, like Psalm 32. Psalm 32 says, when I kept silent, my bones were wasting away. When I acknowledged my sin and I didn't cover over my iniquity, when I confessed it, you forgave Psalm 38, there was no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquity was covering over my head. Psalm 51, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned. Jonah, you got something to say? He he rushes straight to pardon, an assurance of pardon, bypassing confession and repentance. And a lot of the psalms he's alluding to and quoting from here are psalms where the person suffering is suffering suffering unjustly. They're suffering because of persecution or enemies. Jonah seems like he's playing the victim here. And he blames God. You cast me into the deep. 
Sounds a lot like Adam. The woman you gave me gave me the fruit and I ate. In verse 4 he says, I've been driven away from the presence of God. Have you? You said you were running away from the presence of God. Imagine one of your best friends sinned against you grievously. Somehow they, they pilfered your life savings and all your retirement funds, and you were left penniless. And they send you a text, I really appreciate you not pressing charges. You saved me from an orange jumpsuit. Can't wait to get back and start working on our relationship again. Look forward to coming over to the house on Saturday for the barbecue. I'll bring a pie. Would that cut it? Not in my world. Uh, But Jonah hasn't said, I'm sorry. He hasn't said anything about going to Nineveh in this prayer of confession and repentance. Where's he going in this prayer? He's going back to Israel. He's going to the temple. Verse 4, I can't wait to see your temple again. Verse 7, I know you're in your temple. My prayer came to you. Verse 9, I'm going to offer sacrifices again. Where does that happen? In the temple. And he's still self-righteous. He says, those who cling to pagan, uh, to, to worthless idols, they forfeit your love. But me... I call out to you. Who are those who cling to worthless idols in Jonah's mind? The Ninevites? The pagan sailors? The the beautiful irony here is Jonah says, I'm going to offer vows and sacrifices to you. We already saw the pagan sailors do that. They're ahead of him. Jonah's religious language here seems to me to be hiding a hideously deformed heart. His prayer seems to me to be pro forma piety. Just form. Much like Israel's religious life. Jonah in many ways, reflects what's happening in Israel. They're still offering sacrifices. They're still observing Sabbath, but their hearts are far from God. They're oppressing the poor. They're worshiping idols. One of the Psalms Jonah quotes is Psalm 50. God says, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't need them. I'm not hungry. He says, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. Cool. I think Jonah got that part. I'm going to offer sacrifice with thanksgiving. But the next words. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show my salvation. Jonah literally just skips over those words and goes to the next Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
Those are Jonah's words. And God speaks to the fish, and it vomits Jonah out. What did God say? Enough of this crap. (laughs) This stinks. It's disgusting. The word vomit is so intentional. Could have been placed, could have been spit, could have been vomited Jonah out. My friend Aaron Brown did a series in the youth group a couple years ago. I, I think he's revisiting it maybe soon. When Animals Attack in the Bible. And his title for this lesson was Vomiting, Vomiting Fish and Jonah's Stinky Attitude. It's perfect. This is grosser than gross. But here, in the grossest, most disturbing part of the chapter, I find such deep encouragement. Because God's mercy is for hypocrites too. God's mercy is for people who don't fully repent. God's mercy is for those who keep returning to the same sins over and over again. Yes, amen, it is. When we think of God's mercy, we should be using words like indomitable, unstoppable, irresistible. I know I often find myself back in sins that I... thought I had left in my rearview mirror 10 years ago. I think, how am I back here? And I start this kind of navel-gazing, this introspection. Is my faith really genuine? Is my repentance really good enough? Stop. Not here. Here. Not, not the perfection of my repentance or yours. The strength, the determination of God's mercy. Jonah's last words in the fish salvation belongs to the Lord. That might be the best short summary of the entire Bible line. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Little did Jonah know, little did he understand that his three-night stay in Hotel Beluga (laughs) was pointing us to Christ, to God's ultimate provision of mercy, who after making an atonement for our sin, spent three days in Sheol, in the grave, didn't get spit out, but came out triumphantly, throwing open the doors of God's mercy to all who would but trust and believe. Would you pray with me? Father, your mercy is so good. We see the tip of the iceberg. We don't quite understand how deep our sin goes, so we don't quite understand how great and big and powerful your mercy is. But we glorify you for it. We thank you for it.
Father, we pray that you would shape us by your mercy and make us channels of that mercy to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.